0: It's the Vince in the Bay podcast. This episode, my guest is Giovanni Vigna. He is the co-founder and CTO of Lastline Incorporated, a company which develops solutions to detect and mitigate advanced malware and targeted threats. He is a professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of California in Santa Barbara and director of the Center for Cybersecurity at UCSB. He is the co-founder of the Shellfish Hacking Group. He and I met in San Francisco, right here in the Bay Area at RSA 2018, where Giovanni was in town for a couple of sessions. He did one session entitled... How Automated Vulnerability Analysis Discovered Hundreds of Android Zero Days. And also another session called The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly of the Ultrasonic Communications Ecosystem. I like the reference to the Spaghetti Western, the old Italian uh, Sergio Leone Spaghetti Westerns, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. Fitting, considering that Giovanni is Italian. Who would have guessed? Anyway, we discussed all of these things, plus GDPR and Santa Barbara Hot Springs, of all things, and a lot of other stuff. Enjoy. Buongiorno. Welcome. I'm joined now by Giovanni Vigna, CTO of Last Line. He's also the co-founder of Last Line. Welcome. Thank you for joining me, Giovanni. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. Um, So, you're CTO and co-founder of Lastline. What the hell does Lastline do?
1: So, Lastline fundamentally uh, sits on enterprise networks and tries to identify breaches. So, which hosts have been compromised, uh, if there is activity within the network that indicates that an intruder is spreading out in the network. And we do this by composing network analysis and program analysis, meaning that we look at the traffic, but we also analyze the artifacts, the documents, the programs, the pieces of JavaScript that flow around the network. We put everything together and we try to give to our customers a good idea of what's going on in their networks. So. We the, the basic product is called Last Line Enterprise, uh, but we have developed a new product called Breach Defender. Breach, Breach that's Breach. Breach, Breach like, like in Data Breach. Uh-huh. Um, and, and the basic idea is that we want to move from uh, knowing that you've been hit to knowing how bad it is. Because we found out that not all intrusions are equal. There are things that are commodity intrusions, if you want, that you just uh, remediate by reinstalling something. And you have actual data breaches, which which are complex campaigns against your infrastructure. And so you want to be able to identify those and escalate very fast to, you know, capable analysts and responders without losing any time. And right now, most of the technology that you can find out there doesn't make this distinction very well. And so you sometimes, you know, send somebody that is a very expensive expert to solve a problem that is not a big problem, or you might not see that something horrible is happening in your network and something that deserves a lot of attention, and so you lose that train. The the bigger you become, uh, the more the more complex the situation is, and the need for triaging becomes uh, paramount. So you need to be able to you know send this to the nurse, this to the to the, to the MD, this to the surgeon, uh, like you would do in a battlefield. And making the wrong decision can cost you a lot of money, a lot of time, and you know. Uh, you're wasting precious resources so i think that we're moving from the concept of detection to the context of triaging in remediation so you need to find the right person to you know uh, to handle certain things and to do this you have to sift through all these events, some of which are completely innocuous but anomalous. Suddenly you decide to download, you know, the whole Battlestar Galactica series from some faraway servers and it looks like, oh my God, this guy is downloading who knows what, but actually it's nothing malicious. Or uh, other things that are not malicious might be horribly hidden in your stream of events and so you need something that is able to take out these events put them in front of the right person so triage the right way in a time efficient manner
0: now so a lot of this uh, is is probably based on ai right like automated algorithms or whatever that can sift through this stuff i guess a lot of attackers are using automated attacks too but uh, what do you think the percentage is if you could guess uh, examples of where you've found an anomaly via the AI technology and or you found an anomaly because you had a human being actually looking through the data.
1: I, I think that's that's a, a, a great point because oftentimes artificial intelligence and machine learning are presented as the silver bullet that will solve yeah. everything and no human beings will be in the loop. I don't think that's the case. As, yeah. as a scientist, uh, for me, artificial intelligence or machine learning are just tools. And these tools are good for certain things, and they're horrible for other things. And using them as you know, a panacea for any type of problem, every type of problem, is, is the wrong approach. So there are things that machine learning does really well, which is characterizing very stable domain, uh, domains of data and identifying outliers. That's something that it, they're very successful at. But oftentimes, understanding the logic implication of larger attacks is something that humans are really good at. But you have to present to the human the right information. So I think that that's where... Uh, technology becomes really useful because I can give you a list, a big table of events, and you're like, "What? But then I present you a graph and i I'm able to put uh, you know little lines between this host and your most precious database, and you see that connection, and immediately in your mind, that graph uh, becomes a semantic connections like that machine should not connect to my database what, what, what's happening here for a machine uh, understanding that situation. Is not very easy for a human being. Even a junior analyst, that would be an immense help because you know your network, you know your assets, you know your patterns. So bringing to you the right information in the right visualization is really important, and that's what we we try to do.
0: We're here at RSA 2018, and uh, what brings you here other than, uh, you know, obviously meeting with me? Uh, are you doing any talks or an events, or, or, or what's, what's, what's your agenda here?
1: So, first of all, we're launching this new product, Breach Defender. But I also have two talks that I'm that one that I already gave on uh, the security of the ultrasound ec- ecosystem and how uh, that can be abused to do a lot of shenanigans. Uh, and tomorrow, I'm giving a talk about finding zero day vulnerabilities in Android kernels. Um, and, that was Android kernels. Yes. Okay. Yeah, they, they, so the, more on this. What's going on with that? So the the main problem is that uh, if you think about Android, it is very similar to what Windows was uh, a long time ago. Meaning that they have a core operating system which is provided by Google, but then every vendor adds their own drivers to deal with you know specific hardware, and while the kernel is pretty uh, studied and secured, all these drivers are largely unchecked, and they're developed under substantial uh, time pressure, because the time to market is one of the most important drivers, and as a result, they might have a lot of vulnerabilities. So we developed, as part of our research at UCSB, a number of techniques to explore these drivers, to test them, to fuzz them, to analyze them, to find these vulnerabilities. And we have been uh, extremely successful in finding these vulnerabilities. And we disclosed them, of course, to the vendors. Uh, we didn't use them to you know, uh, root these uh, millions of phones um, and to improve the overall security of the Android ecosystem. You mentioned UCSB. Yes, You're, that's my university. That's where I'm a professor at. Go Gauchos. Gauchos, go for it.
0: Um, you know, one of my favorite hot springs is outside of Santa Barbara. You ever been to Gaviota Hot Springs? Yes. That's like my own personal little oasis. I love that's that place. That's very nice. Every, yes. time, every time I drive down or up to L.A., if, if I have the time, I'll take 101 and go up there and hike up. And,
1: oh, it's, it's there's some it's fantastic, fantastic places. Yeah,
0: yeah. Anyway, back to um, hacking and stuff. Uh, You were mentioning before we got started about a shortage of skilled individuals in this industry. Talk about that. What are the issues with the pipeline, and what do you think can be done to overcome that.
1: Absolutely. Being an educator, this is something very close to my uh, sensitivity. Of course, we don't have enough security experts. We need more security experts to address every aspect of the security problem. From people that uh, sit in a sock uh, looking at data to understand if an attack is happening, to people developing secure software that doesn't have vulnerabilities. Um, And, you know, Part of this is just education, so having more teachers teaching security, and not just a class in security, but actually a security component in every class, because I can be teaching programming languages and explaining what a buffer overflow is. Uh, I can be teaching a class on operating system and making understand what a race condition in file access is. So all these aspects uh, cannot be ignored anymore. Sometimes security is seen as an afterthought, in teaching, in developing, in many situations. And given the state of uh, IT and security in general, this cannot be an afterthought anymore and has to be a principled approach to introducing security in every aspect of IT. One thing that I like to do is also create hacking competitions. One that I create every year is called the ICTF. Uh, which is uh, one of the largest in the world. It's online, happening in the cloud. Wait, wait,
0: wait. What does ICTF stand for? The
1: International Capture the Flag, because we started in 2003... Just involving U.S. Uh, universities, and then it grew and it grew and became a huge event. That a huge event that involves you know uh, dozens of institutions across the world, from Australia to India, um, South America, and they all connect once a year to UCSB. Hundreds of teams, and they all attack and defend, uh, uh, attack each other and defend their own virtual machine, very similar to what happened in DEFCON CTF, but all virtualized in the cloud to allow the maximum amount of participation. And you you
0: mentioned uh, DEFCON.
1: So apparently you've been
0: competing in their capture the plague for a while. What's up with that?
1: So we we started competing uh, in 2004 technically in 2003, but uh, the the team that I started called Shellfish uh, started competing in 2004. We are the longest running uh, team at the Capture the Flag. Uh, We won only one time in 2005. But in general, we love participating in the DEFCON Capture the Flag because it's sort of like the world championship of hacking. Um, And we love the, the idea that Competition bring out of students the best. I mean, they. I I can see my grad students, which are largely what uh, shellfish is. uh, I see them uh, putting so much effort into that participation uh, that they wouldn't put in you know, a normal research or a normal class. The moment you create a competitive environment, you foster new developments, new tools, new research. And in fact, as a sidebar on this, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge that happened two years ago. We were one of the seven teams that participated in this autonomous hacking competition. And actually, we ended up third place and we brought... Back Back 1.5 million dollar cash, which was great. Uh, And now, when my students want to hack long nights, they can order sushi as much as they want, or they travel the world participating in hacking competition. I think right now a few of them are in Russia for RU CTF. And so that's um, a great way to create a security positive environment. Cool. I notice you have an accent,
0: and uh, I presume you're from Italia. Correct. And uh, so that would mean you, you, uh, you're, you're technically a Euro? I am definitely a Euro. And so the big hot topic that I keep hearing about, especially in the light of the, the Zuckerberg testimony before Congress, um, is everybody's talking about this GDPR legislation and how lawmakers here, policy people here are thinking about adopting it to some sort of legislation here in the states. What's your take on on it being implemented over there and then the idea of bringing it over here?
1: Europeans have always been more sensitive to data privacy and they want to always be aware of how their data is used in what context and to do what. The problem is that we have seen in the past 10 years the introduction of these free services that in exchange fundamentally for your private data, they offer you fantastic uh, services like Gmail, Google Drive, uh, Facebook. And we have accepted this trade-off, not always with a full understanding of what's going on, but we had a choice. We don't have to use Gmail. We don't have to use Facebook. But we decided to do that transaction. Now, both the European side but also the American side are starting to look back at this and say, hey, people are making a lot of money out of this data. We have fundamentally lost control of how this data is distributed and used. Maybe we need to rein it in and at least make sure that whoever holds this data has the right measure, security measure in place to guarantee that are used in the way this data is intended to be used. The fundamental gist of the GDPR is, hey, you are handling this data. This data is precious, is important, is not just an economic tool, but it's also the life of people. So we want you to be responsible and to have in place basic mechanisms to prevent the most outrageous problems. So Nothing is completely secure, so nobody will ever say, oh, this is 100% secure. But you can go a long way by having a system that can, for example, detect a breach or having a system that makes sure that if somebody, you know, grabs a drive out of a cloud and starts running, uh, will not have any important data on it or the data is completely encrypted. These are basic techniques, and GDPR just makes sure that you will have those techniques and those mechanisms in place. And it does so by you know, having a fines that are a percentage of what a company makes. So if you're a big company and you get hit by these kind of fines, it's not going to be like a $30,000 $30, fine, which most large corporations would shrug off. This is going to be 4% or a percentage of your... Uh, proportional to... Exactly. But I think it would be uh, not easy for a certain company to escape the pain that comes with a violation of GDPR. And now the U.S. is looking at this and saying, well, some of the stuff that is happening there. Maybe it doesn't have to be as draconian, but there are some good lessons that we can learn from that. And maybe we need similar regulation here. Well, it's okay for Facebook to use our personal information for targeted ads, but then they have to have some safeguards in place so their stuff cannot be stolen, or, like in the case that brought Mark Zuckerberg to testify in front of Congress, uh, the sharing of this information should be regulated so that Cambridge Analytica, the many of them, cannot abuse that data.
0: Microsoft and, a, and, a, and a, was something like 35 other companies just announced the CTA, Cybersecurity Accord. No, Cyber. Security Technology Accord. Are you familiar with that?
1: Uh, I haven't seen the details, so yeah. I'm, I'm not very familiar with that. I saw the news, but it just happened, yeah. so I was busy with RSA. I haven't. Yeah, seen it.
0: same, same here. I, I did see it in passing, and I read part of a blog. I don't know. It, it, it seemed like just sort of like a general uh, statement that said we care and we're going to do good stuff, which is which is great. I, I you know, it's intentions are great, but. You know, is it really going to be anything substantial, you
1: know? I, I agree with you that good intentions are good, but the real strength of GDPR is that it comes with very hefty fines. Yeah. And that's where people are actively scrambling to put those mechanisms in place. Okay, so
0: last line, I'm sure, has international clients, right? You, you, yes. I'm sure you have clients based in in Europe. Absolutely. Has it, has it affected your business model in any way?
1: Yes, I mean, we... Uh, like any other companies, have looked at GDPR. We want to be GDPR. We have to be GDPR compliant, and so we went through the exercise of making sure that uh, everything was copacetic. That we use the right level of encryption. That we have protection. That the partners with whom we partner are protected by GDPR. Because of course, if we have a relationship with somebody, we want them to be as secure as we are, at least in principle. And this, you know, was a a lot of resources in our company, but I think it's the right thing to do.
0: Speaking about the right thing to do, lately, I've been talking to a lot of people about bug bounty policies and disclosure policies
1: What's your take on that? I, we see it differently. When we, as and not as Last Line, but as UCSB, oftentimes we do a lot of vulnerability analysis research. We find a lot of bugs and we use a very responsible disclosure policy where we go to the vendor we collaborate say first we ask them hey can you please verify that this is really a problem they verify it independently and once they do that we give them enough time to uh, like 3 to 6 months to solve the problem which is a completely reasonable time frame and I must say that, in the history of us doing research, we never found an adversarial situation where the company was upset about it. Usually, the company is very grateful that we find all these bugs for us it's a great way to validate our algorithms to automatically find vulnerabilities for them is a great way to say, "Hey, you made my product more secure," and we you know we don't disclose them we don't uh, whenever we are um, we are at risk of providing hacking tools to bad guys. We don't make them available. While in most every other case, we made all our, so- all our software open source. Um, Giovanni,
0: CTO, last line. And also, what's your title
1: at UCSB? Professor of Prof- Computer Science.
0: Professor of Computer Science at UCSB. If anybody wants to find out more about LastLine and, and your products, uh, where can they go to, f- to find information on that?
1: They can go to LastLine.com. That's where uh, our website is or to uh, www.cs.ucsb.edu. And that's where the computer science department is and where my academic page lives as well. And so the research you do with
0: the students there, does that get posted there once it's… Everything, it's, yes. Yeah, that's great. Cool. Hey, thanks, Giovanni. I really appreciate you taking time to, to speak with me. Thank you for having me here. It
1: was really fun. Cool. Likewise. Awesome.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Vince in the Bay podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Check out my blog at VincentTheBay.com And hit me up on Twitter at Vince in the Bay. Until next time, ciao.